First of all, this cover page is, is fantastic. Seeing the goat in midair, Chaim asked the question, were any goats harmed in the creation of this cover page? <laughs> but a very special thank you to Ellie and Jenny Abraham in Detroit for sponsoring tonight's cheer. And the, uh, the subject tonight is Azazel, a.k.a. Azazel. The, the goal of tonight will be somewhat different than some of the previous shiurim. I'd like to focus more on methodology. I'd like to focus more on how to approach, how to approach any particular part of the Torah that superficially, and even once you dig a little bit deeper, is still very, very foreign, very strange, very hard to relate to. So hopefully the inspiration tonight will not be so much from the content, but more from developing or at least trying to explore what the authentic methodology is for interpreting and, and making Torah concepts more relevant and more real. We have the, the Yavoda of Yom Kippur, the service that was done in Yom Kippur. And we have a very strange part of this service, unique throughout the entire Torah, where the Pasuk tells us, You should take two goats for sin offerings, and you should also bring a ram for an ola, for an elevation offering. So the first thing Aaron did, or should do, is to bring the, the par, the, 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 the bull, which is a sin offering. And then he should take these two goats. And he should stand before Hashem at the opening, at the entrance of the Ohel Moed. He should place lotteries on top of the two goats. One is for Hashem and one is for Azazel. Right, so the, the Mishnayas explained that he would choose one and put it on top of one goat, and then he would choose the other one and place it on top of the second goat. And the one that said, this is for Hashem, he would offer that as a, as a carbon. However, the other goat that was chosen to go to Azazel, it should stand alive before Hashem, that will be used for a kapara as a source of forgiveness to be sent out into the wilderness. Then later on, the Torah tells us, what is that procedure? That Aaron will place his two hands on the head of the goat that's alive. And he will pour onto this goat all of the sins, all of the iniquities of Klal Yisrael. And he'll send the goat away with the one who is designated to, uh, to bring it to Azazel. What is that goat leaving with? That goat will carry with it all of the averos, all of the sins of the Jewish people, to the land of Gezerah. And that goat will be set into the wilderness. So besides just the face value of this seeming very strange, very unique, we, we never have another situation like this with perhaps the one exception of what we read in last week's Parsha, the special carbon of the Mitzorah. The Mitzorah who was afflicted with Tsaras, he would bring two birds, one bird was used as a carbon in the classic sense, and the other bird was sent free to fly away. So this sounds somewhat similar to what the Mitzorah would bring, 
But the whole idea of, of taking an animal and not bringing it into the sanctuary, not making it part of the avoda, part of the service, but rather sending it out to the desert, it's a very strange thing. Now in common Jewish practice, we have a couple of, of minhagim, a couple of customs that seem to be based on a similar idea. And we know that the Shulchan Aruch speaks about the custom of tashlich. And I think many of us growing up, we assume that tashlich is like part and parcel of Rosh Hashanah. In, in order to be yotze, in order to really fulfill your obligation of the day, you have to stand by water and say these particular verses. So the Aruch HaShulchan, when he speaks about the custom of tashlich, <coughs> he says that some go on the first day to a river <coughs> or a body of water, <clears throat> and they say <clears throat> the, the pasuk the tashlich mitzulos yom kol chatoseinu to throw into the, the sea all of our sins and this ceremony is called tashlich he, he cautions us that you shouldn't have a whole mixture of men and women going together because whatever you're achieving through tashlich you're probably losing through having that kind of ambiance you want to have a kosher environment and he says, you should also know that in general, some people, yesh misromi malzeh Some don't like the practice in the first place. And there are many who refrain from even participating in tashlich, v'nachon hu, and I get it. So he's sharing with us this practice of tashlich, which seems to be a similar idea of the sending away of the goat to Azazel. I'm, I'm placing my sins onto this thing and throwing it away. So too, I stand by the water and I throw away my averos. The third example, also a custom that uh, many of us have seen before, is kaparos. We know that before Yom Kippur, the Shulchan Aruch tells us that mashinogim lasos kapar berev Yom Kippurim, that they have the custom of taking a chicken and shechting it, and, uh, but before doing so, reciting certain psukim over the chicken and almost having a similar concept or a similar theme of transferring mayaveros onto the chicken. <clears throat> However, the Mechaber himself says, Yesh lim Noah haminig, I would suggest we stay away from that custom. And the reason for that is, the Rashba and the Ramban write, that it comes from pagan sources. This is not authentic Judaism. Stay away from kaparos. <clears throat> However, the Ramah says, we have many other sources that tell us this is a classic custom that goes back hundreds of years, and if you have the minig, do not throw it away, but hold on to it and keep on doing it. So we have these two cases of, of minhagim, one is tashlich and one is kaparos, and they seem to have a, a similar feel to sending away the averos and the goat, I'm now sending it to the, the ocean, or I'm sending it with the chicken. I remember it was Shabbos before Yom Kippur and I was walking with a few friends and this guy comes speeding down in like a bright red, um, I don't know what it was, a Porsche or something. It was a very nice car. And he rolls down his window and he says, Hey, good Shabbos! So we're kind of surprised. You know? <coughs> Shabbos. But then we were more surprised. It's like, guys, can you tell me, where can I shlug kaparos? That's the Yiddish for where can I do kaparos, but to say, that was surprising. Where can I shlug kaparos? <clears throat> that happens to me, this is a whole conversation in and of itself. Sometimes when it's done in public, it's probably not the, uh, the best thing for the Jewish people that we have many, many non-Jews walking by, seeing us with chicken cages and swaying them to and fro. Might not be the best representation of what Judaism is. But at least the Ramah tells us it's a, it's, a, it's a proper custom and you're allowed to keep on doing it. But what's the whole idea? What in the world are we talking about? We're sending away our veros with the goat or we're throwing them into the water or we're going to kill them with the chicken. What, what's going on? So the Rashbam comes along. The Rashbam was the grandson of Rashi. When Arashi had no sons, but he had illustrious daughters, one of his daughters was named Yocheved. 
And she had four amazing sons who were the Balei Tosvos, the next generation of commentators on the Gemara. And they were really a, a revolution within Torah scholarship. One son was Yitzchak, who was the Rivam. The other was the Rashbam. That's uh, Reb Shmuel ben Meir. Meir was the son-in-law of Rashi. We have the Rebbeinu Tam. Four amazing Talmudic Chachamim. So the Rashbam wanted to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. And he was very intrigued with the life and the legacy of Rashi. And Rashi himself makes it clear in the introduction to his commentary on Chumash, he writes that my goal is to just give you the Pshuto Shel Mikra, to give you the most basic, essential understanding, the, the superficial grasp of what's happening. You know, there's so many layers to understanding Torah, but that was Rashi's agenda. The Rashbam actually tells us that he had a conversation with his grandfather where they were having a back and forth, somewhat of a debate. And he turns to his grandfather and he said, I'll tell you the truth, there are many places where you don't say the most basic understanding. You know, you, you do quote many midrashim and oftentimes those midrashim are not the pashib shot. So after this debate, Rashi turns to the Rashbam and he told him, according to the Rashbam himself, if I had more time, I would write a second commentary even more basic, just explaining what the psukah mean at face value. Says the Rashbam, that's where I come in. I'm going to take over from my grandfather, and that's what my parish is all about. So in his explanation of sending away the goat to Azazel, the Rashbam tells in source number five, Lafip Shuto, the basic idea here is, we send it away to other goats that are in the desert. <clears throat> Just like we have when we send away the, the second bird of the Mitzorah offering. That's what's happening here. And the point of it is, to purify the Jewish people from their sins. So he doesn't really tell, tell us how it's purifying us from our sins. But his interpretation is, we just send it away, and it lives a nice life, it finds other goats to be friends with, and all ends well. The Ralbag comes along, though. The Ralbag was one of the great commentators of the, the early part of the 1300s. And uh, besides being well-known, obviously, for his parish in Chumash, he was well-known in the secular world as well, for his contributions in the fields of philosophy, and science, and mathematics, and astronomy. Have you ever heard of Jacob's Staff? Jacob's Staff was invented in the 1300s by Rabbi Levi ben Gershom, by the Ralbag. And it was a surveying instrument that was used for making astronomical measurements. And it, it's, it was used for hundreds of years in different forms. It, there was a whole evolution process with it. But he was the Mechadesh. He was the one who created Jacob's Staff. Uh, there's also a crater on the moon named after the Ralbag. It's known as Rabbi Levi's Crater. He was a master of astrology, of astronomy rather. <clears throat> so comes along the Ralbag, and he says, source number seven, what's going on with sending away the goat? This is a psychological benefit that by sending away this goat, by doing something tangible and physical, we're, we're getting the feeling that Hashem has forgiven our mistakes. And we won't have the barrier, we won't have that, that, that brick wall in front of us, that sense of, I'm, I'm worthless, what can I do? I have so many averos, I've made so many mistakes, how could I change myself now? Explains the Ralbag, that's the whole point of sending away the goat. So it becomes real to us, we feel it. You should know though, unlike the Rashbam, it does not end well for the goat, the goat ends up dying, as is clear from the mission as well. But the Rabbah says it's all about the psychological benefit we're getting from, from a ritual, from a ceremony. The Rambam in the, in the Mor Nevuchim seems to say something pretty similar. 
He says, He says, one second. Is it true that you could send away your sins with an animal? And that's pretty convenient. How does that work? So, We view it as if we're sending away all of our sins with the goat. And that's why we don't bring this animal into the base of Migdash as we would with a normal carbon. But we throw it, we, we shoo it away. We send it to a land that's totally void and empty. Don't ever think that you can just get rid of your sins and put them onto someone else's back or onto the back of this poor goat. That's not how it works. But all of these actions, every step of this quote-unquote ritual, is lahavi mora benefish, is to bring an awe into the neshama, until we're moved for tshuva, until we're inspired to return to Hashem. So structurally, both the Ralbag and the Rambam and the Mornavuchim are telling us, the main point here is the psychological impact, we're able to see something and therefore we could feel that our averas are being cleansed and have the, have the impetus, have the motivation, have the belief in ourselves to do tshuva. Okay. <clears throat> now, to get a little bit, a little bit deeper. We know that in the Torah we have two categories of mitzvahs. We have chukim and we have mishpatim. Chukim are the mitzvahs that are beyond human comprehension. And the mishpatim are the mitzvahs that we understand, we can relate to. The, the best example, I think, would be as follows. You go to the doctor, and after taking a blood test, he tells you, you have very high cholesterol. You're going to have to start taking medicine. So your response is, you know what? Before I do that, can I try more of a natural thing maybe exercising, eating well, and I'll come back to you in a month and we'll see if I still need the medication. And he agrees. So for the first like day or two, you're walking and you're running and you're eating well, but then a few days later you get back into your old habits. You go back to the doctor a month later, lo and behold, you have the same issues and he tells you, you have to do both. You have to take the medication and you have to exercise every day and stay away from saturated fats. Chukim umishpatim. The medication. Do you have any clue how that works? What exactly is inside this pill that goes into my system that could rectify you know, blood pressure, or heart issues, cholesterol? You have no clue. Unless you're a doctor, unless you know how the medicine is created, you have no clue how it works. Why are you taking the medicine? Well, the doctor said so. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It makes sense to take it because I, I have trust that my physician knows what he's talking about. I don't know exactly how it works, but I take it anyway. That's a chok. Mishpatim are those things like exercise and uh, eating well. I get it, right? If I get away from saturated fat, that will reduce cholesterol. If I exercise more, I'll be healthier. Those are mishpatim. So the, the, the way we've learned this for years is that category one, that's a chok, that's a statute, that's above and beyond human comprehension. Don't even bother thinking about it. It's a waste of time. Just do it because I said so. And smile and enjoy it. Mishpatim, so obviously you know why you have to and therefore you should do it with the understanding and, and the rationale behind it. To shatter that world though comes along the Rambam. The Rambam and the Mishnah Torah, the very end of Me'ilah, he writes as follows. He says, We need to analyze the halachos of the Torah. And not just to know them superficially, but to have a solid grasp on them according to our capacity. And something that I can't find a reason for, I can't explain it well. I don't know the source of why I should be doing this, more than the fact that my doctor said so. It still shouldn't be light in your eyes. 
just because we don't understand how it works, I shouldn't look down on the mitzvah. That's what the Rambam says. <clears throat> he says, Amr Chachamim, he quotes the Pasuk in Parshas Kedoshim. The Pasuk says, which literally means you should guard all of my chukos, all of my statutes, those that are above comprehension. And all of my mishpatim, and you should do them. So the Torah is saying two things. Ushmartem, you should guard them, guard both categories of mitzvos, va'asisem osam, and you should do them. What is the difference between guarding and asiya and doing? The Rambam says doing is very simple. Doing is doing. I'm observant. I do what I have to do. Ushmartem, to guard them means to have to have a cheshivas for them, to have a significance, to, to feel that they're meaningful in my life. And if I don't understand how they help me, part of my job here is to have more of a relationship, more of a connection to even the chukim. I remember that I was at a, I forget where I was, some kind of pet store, I think, with the family. That was when my, one of my daughters wanted a, a, a guinea pig. And we fought that for years, <laughs> until finally we lost... And uh, we bought the guinea pig with everything, you know, the little wood chips and the food and the cage and spent like $500 in the whole thing, <laughs> you know, not really, but almost. And um, but we're at the, at the pet store, and as we're walking out with all of our, our new stuff, including the guinea pig, a lady walks in, very sweet lady, and she starts schmoozing. You know, she obviously could tell that we're Jewish. Her first question was, are you Jewish? <laughs> so I said, No. <laughs> and she was taken aback for a moment. But we started schmoozing, and she said to me, I'll tell you, Rabbi, I'm, uh, I'm religious, but I'm not observant. So I said back, that actually works out well, I'm observant, but I'm not religious. Together we'd make the perfect Jew. But usually when a person says, I'm religious and not observant, that means, I feel it, it's in my heart, I have a connection, I just don't do all of the things, right? I'm not super traditional. If you're observant but not super religious, that means I do everything I have to. I don't always feel it. I don't always have a sense of connection, but I do what I have to do. The Torah is telling us, You have to have the, the religious fervor and you have to do it as well. You need both. What does that mean practically explains the Rambam. Hasiya yadua, doing is fairly straightforward. You have to do the chukim also. Vahashmira, but guarding them is she is zohir behed. You should be careful with them. Don't think they're any less important than the mitzvahs you understand. Now, when it comes to the chukim, we know Yitzrev shel adam nokvo behen. The Yitzhahara is always questioning. We always have that voice in the back of your head. Why am I shaking these things? What is this really doing? So we ourselves are questioning the mitzvah when it's a chok. And we have the non-Jewish world also making fun of it. It doesn't make any sense. Some examples of chukim, writes the Rambam. Basar chazir, all non-kosher species. Basar b'chalav, or having meat and milk cooked together. Egla, rufa, para, duma. And sending away the goat. That's one of the examples, of, says the Rambam, of something that's a chok. That's totally unfathomable. Can I ask you a question? Didn't the Rambam just tell us before in the Mor Nevochim, he gave us a beautiful reason. He said it's helpful psychologically. To be able to do tshuva, you have to have something tangible, you have to have something more experiential. You send the goat away, and it's somewhat almost of a, of a violent pushing it out of my life, getting rid of those averos, believing that Hashem accepts tshuva. So you gave us a beautiful reason, but now you're telling me it's a chok, it makes no sense. So the answer is quite simple. Ultimately, it's a chok. We don't really know what's going on. And, and it, that's somewhat disappointing. 
But we're not going to walk out of here tonight feeling 100% satisfied, or your money back, right? 100% satisfied that now we totally get sending away the goat. Because it's a chok. So why is the Rambam giving us a reason if we don't really have the reason? Clearly what the Rambam's doing is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an angle. I'm going to share with you an idea. I'm going I'm to give you an aspect of truth. There's much more than this, but this is something you could relate to. So I think what we could deduce from both of these Rambams together is that even when something is a chok, even when we're never going to know the underlying reason, it's still very helpful to have a perspective, to have something that I could latch onto, something that I could connect with. This is true to the extent that the Sefer Achinach, we know that he wrote this Sefer for his child, for his bar mitzvah. And he wanted to give him reasons for all of the mitzvahs, that he and his friends would always know why they're doing what they're doing. However, when he gets to mitzvah Kuf Yod Zayin, the 117th mitzvah, which is the prohibition against putting honey or leaven on the altar, he's at a complete loss. The Sefer Chinuch writes, I'll tell you the truth, I have no clue. I don't know what this is based on. <clears throat> I have to tell you a quick story. One of the first times I was learning together with Dr. Ladner, this is going back years ago, Baruch Hashem, we just finished Shmuel Aleph, an amazing accomplishment. But when we learned Chumash together, we were going through from the beginning to the end, and we got up to Parshas Vayikra, and we got to this particular prohibition against placing honey or leaven on the Mizbeach, on the altar. And he asked me the question, what's the reason for this? So I remembered that the Sefer Chinuch spoke about it, but I forgot exactly what he said. So it turns out, right after we were done with our session, I wanted to go look up the Sefer Chinuch. I pull it off the shelf and open it up right to the page. Not putting honey or seora on the Mizbeach. Right? Got to be aware of these little, little taps on the shoulder. So the Sefer Chinuch writes, I don't know the ultimate reason for this. However, because I told you in my introduction that I'm writing this for the youth, for my son and for his friends, that they should have something to latch on to. They should realize that Torah has reasons and it's beneficial. That they could at least on their level feel some level of connection. It shouldn't be, at least as they're starting out with Judaism, that the mitzvahs are like a closed book. What's the big deal if they don't have a good reason? What's the big deal if, if his father wasn't able to come up with something powerful? It's a massive deal. Listen to this line. Pen Because if they don't have a good reason why they're doing it, they might rebel. They might say, you know what? This is worthless. Forget it. And throw away Torah and throw away mitzvos and live their life doing things that are meaningless. So it's clear from the Rambam and it's clear from the Sefer Chinuch, even if we don't really know why, we have to have some reason that we're attaching ourselves to, even when it comes to the Chukim. <clears throat> Now we find a few examples where the Rambam does this. Where the Rambam says, the real reason is a chok, but there is a remez, but there is an illusion. Perhaps the most famous one is in Hilchus Tshuva, where he speaks about the mitzvah of shofar. He says, Even though the mitzvah to blow shofar, Rosh Hashanah, is a decree from the Torah, There is a hint here. What's the hint of the shofar? Explains the Rambam, his famous words, Kolomar uru yishenim mishnaschem. It's like a spiritual alarm clock. Wake up from your slumber. Get up from your, from your numbness and do tshuva. So shofar is an example where the real mitzvah is a gezerah, it's a chok, but there is a remez. There is something that we could, we could connect to. Another example is actually Beshert that we brought it this evening. Because we have Julie here with us tonight, 
the architect of our mikvah. And uh, this is where the Rambam speaks about the reason for a mikvah. He says, Dover Boru Vagalui, it's clear to all and revealed. Shehatumos Vataros Gezeras Akasuvhain. When it comes to all of the halachos of Tumma Vatara, of spiritual purity or impurity, that's also in the category of a chok. We don't get it. It's not something we could understand. So to the whole idea of, of immersing oneself in mikvah water to go from a state of tuma to a state of tara, what is that doing? Do I have any schmutz on me? Do I have, do I have sand or dirt I'm trying to get off from the water? It's obviously a spiritual impurity, so what does the water help? So says the Rambam, even though it's a chok, there's an illusion here, that when you have in mind to go into the mikvah, to purify and change your status, to uplift yourself, then you become tahor. So says the Rambam, it's true in life as well. That even though we don't change anything in our body, there's nothing we're doing different. Once we have a commitment to change, once we have this conviction that we have to be different, then that's something powerful within us and we can become different people. That's the remez of the mikvah. So we have the Ralbag and the Rambam giving us one basic reason for sending away the goat. We have the Rambam telling us though that ultimately it's a chok. And like in the case of shofar, in the case of mikvah, all chukim are something we don't fully get, but there are aspects of truth that we can relate to. Question is now when it comes to methodology. Do you just make up any reason that feels good? Do you just say, well, it reminds me, you know, of my, my grandmother's matzah ball soup, so whenever I do this mitzvah, I'm thinking of matzah ball soup. How does the whole thing work? Is there a science in determining a tam, a reason for the mitzvah. So it happens to be Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, who was the, really the powerhouse of, of the 1800s living in Germany, fighting the fight for authentic Torah Judaism. He has his famous book, The 19 Letters. Have we mentioned this before, The 19 Letters here? He wrote this when he was a young man, before he was known throughout the world. And he writes it in a way as if he's having a conversation with somebody else. That he is speaking with someone who has questions, and he being the rabbi is, is giving answers, but he's using it as a platform to explain some of the basic philosophies of Judaism. In letter 18, which is packed with controversy, um, and really he holds no punches. One thing about Rosham Shemrafal Hirsch is he speaks his mind, whatever it is, he speaks his mind. He actually has a few complaints against the Rambam's approach. He says he, referring to the Rambam, <clears throat> the great systematic organizer of the practical results of the Talmud, the Rambam was famous for his Mishnah Torah, where his, that, that's his codification of Jewish law, gives expression in the last part of his philosophical work to opinions concerning the meaning and purpose of the commandments, so the Rambam in his philosophical work, the Mora Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed, he offers suggestions for the reasons of particular mitzvos, taking the very practical results codified by himself as the contents of the commandments are utterly untenable. I feel that some of the reasons the Rambam gives for the mitzvos, they really can't be used. They cast no real light upon them, and cannot go hand in hand with them in practice, in life, and in science. Meaning to say that some of the reasons of the Rambam in his assessment, they, they don't really capture what the mitzvah is. Because there are so many aspects of the mitzvah that may have nothing to do with the reason you're suggesting that can't be the reason for the mitzvah. He says, these are the views which have been inherited up to the present day by those who care about, who care at all to understand the spirit of the mitzvot, meaning a lot of his ideas have been incorporated throughout the Torah world. But since the, the precepts as practically fulfilled stand entirely out of connection with these explanations, 
Meaning to say, you have to translate this even though it's in English, meaning to say, since the mitzvahs themselves, when we're doing them, have so little to do with the reasons of the Rambam, what ends up happening is, we're just observant Jews, we're just doing them. We have the Asisem, but we don't have the Shmira, we don't have that religious fervor. Because in practice, those reasons don't really play out. And what is the outcome of this? He says, the mitzvot that we don't understand have become despised. Exactly what the Sefer Chinech was saying. If we don't understand the mitzvot at all, then it's not like we have this neutral relationship with these mitzvot. We begin to feel a resentment towards them. Therefore, it says, Rosham Shonafel Hirsch, you see, instead of taking one stand within Judaism, and asking, in as much as Judaism makes these demands of me, what opinion of the purpose of man must it have? Instead of comprehending each demand in its totality according to Tanakh in the Talmud, and then asking, what is the reason and idea of this injunction? People set up their standards outside of Judaism, and they, they sought to draw it over to them. They have these preconceived notions as to what the mitzvah might be, and then they just kind of force it in to what the mitzvah is. His main point is that when it comes to Jewish philosophy and offering reasons for the mitzvahs, it cannot be an exercise of outside-in. It must be inside-out. How, how do I get inside? By learning it well in Tanakh, by understanding all of the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition surrounding it, including all of the halachos, and only with that knowledge, then I could come up with reasons that relate to every aspect of the mitzvah. Otherwise, you're just trying to superimpose your own ideas onto the Torah. Now he does end off by saying the people who got it right, the Kuzari, Yehuda HaLevi was known as the, the mainstream philosophy within Judaism, and the Ramban. the Ramban. So it sounds like although we want to give reasons for mitzvah so we can relate to them more, according to Rav Hirsch, that should be an inside-out practice, not an outside-in. <clears throat> now for the last part of this discussion, I want to get a little bit Kabbalistic. Getting back to Azazel. Right, so we have the basic notion of chukim and mishpatim, even the chukim we want to have some reason for. Is there anything more than the psychological reason that the Ralbag and the Rambam share with us? The Ibn Ezra, he hints to something, and it's so interesting that he doesn't want to say it. He says, I have a secret, a secret that I can't really reveal, but I'll allude to what the secret is, he says, If I want to share with you part of this secret, When you're 33, then you'll understand it. That's the Ibn Ezra coming along, giving us a deeper Kabbalistic insight into the whole episode of sending off the goat to Azazel. Got that? Any guesses what does that mean? Wouldn't even try. Comes along the Ramban, and the Ramban we know was a master of Kabbalah. He had a strong Masorah in Kabbalah. And he says, I'll explain to you what the Ibn Ezra was talking about. What does it mean, 33? He was saying, if you go 33 verses from where we are right now, in, in 16.8 in Vayikra, go 33 verses in the future to 17.7, and you'll find the secret. <clears throat> it almost sounds like one of those, you know, the hunts around the mall, you get the thing and you... And the Ramban says, The Ibn Ezra was a Neman Ruach. He was a substantial person who felt that he had to keep this revealed. But I, the gossip monger, a gala megala sodo, I want to reveal his secret. So listen carefully. So the Ramban is revealing the secret of the Ibn Ezra. He says the, the Seir is actually a reference to Esav. 
Esav is referred to as Seir because he was hairy, and he inherited Mount Seir. That, that's another name for Esav. So the second goat that's being sent away to Azazel, that's actually being given to Esav, Lefikach, says the Ramban, therefore, we're giving this to Samoel. Samoel is a name that's interchangeable with Satan, with Yetzirah, with Malach Amavis, with the dark side. We're giving this goat to the dark side. Shochad, as a form of bribery, on Yom Kippur. This is the Yom Kippur service. Shalolavateles, Karbonum, in order that Samoel will not nullify the other carbon of the Jewish people. Goral echad la Hashem, one is to Hashem, the girl echad la Zazel, and one goes to a Zazel. So, although the Ramban was expanding on the Ibn Ezra, he's not saying much that's understandable. So, what does 33 Psukim later talk about? Let's take a look. In Vayikra and Perak Zayin, we have a prohibition. Lo yizbuchu od Do not offer sacrifices to the goat demons, asherhem zonim acherehem, that you are straying after. Chukas olam tiyazos lehem ledorosam. And it sounds like from all the commentators here, that there is a particular pagan practice of, of offering Carbonos to, to goat demons. And here the Torah is saying, you Jews, don't do that. So the Ibn Ezra is referencing this Pasuk as somehow revealing the secret behind the service of Yom Kippur. What does the Ibn Ezra say in this Pasuk about offering sacrifices to these demons? So he explains, first of all, they're called goat demons because... People who were delusional, who had visions of, of these shadim, they would appear to them in the image or the form of some kind of goat. What is the prohibition? Anyone who searches those other forces out, anyone who believes in them, what you're doing is you're trading them in for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Because you're thinking mistakenly, you think by getting involved, well, it's Middle Eastern, it's spiritual, there are different deities, different forces. What you're really doing is, you think that there are other things out there that can either hurt you or help you. That's trading in your belief in God. We don't do that. So if anything, the verse that the Ibn Ezra is referencing doesn't shed any light on what's happening on Yom Kippur. To the contrary, it's telling us that what we thought was strange is now even more strange. Not only are we throwing a goat off of a cliff and sending it away to Azazel, but it, it sounds like we're, we're offering it to Samoel, to some kind of force, and that's the very thing the Torah itself says we don't do. Now the Ramban and the Ibn Ezra didn't make this up. This comes from a Pirkei of the Rebelezer. We're not going to have time to go through it now. A very interesting back and forth in the Pirkei of the Rebelezer that goes back to the 9th century. However, um, it's very difficult to understand what they're saying. And even more than what they're saying, the whole notion of offering any carbon to Samoel, it just flies in the face of everything we believe in. A quote from you, to you, from the Hertz Chomish. This was before the Art Scroll. Dr. Hertz was the late chief rabbi of uh, the British Empire. Listen to what he writes regarding the Ramban and the Ibn Ezra. At an earlier period, however, the word Azazel, the Gemara says Azazel means a rocky cliff. It's a thing. However, at an earlier period, the word Azazel became personified. And the strangest theories and legends grew up in connection with Azazel. 
In certain Jewish traditions, for example, Azazel is the, first, is the foremost among the fallen angels. That's a discussion of Nephilim, not for now. But this view that the word Azazel is the name of a demon in the wilderness was shared by the Ibn Ezra and Nachmanides and is to this day adopted by most Bible critics. But it is quite untenable. So like Rav Shamshon Hirsch told us that some of the reasons the Rambam suggests for mitzvot are untenable, we have Rabbi Dr. Hertz telling us that the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban, they're untenable. The offering of sacrifices to Seirim is spoken of as a heinous crime in the very next chapter. Homage to a demon of the wilderness cannot therefore be associated with the holiest temple rites in the chapter immediately preceding. So he's making a pretty strong case. The Torah itself says we don't offer karbonos to demons. So that can't be what's going on on Yom Kippur. But how do we know that he's wrong? Because the Ramban and the Ibn Ezra said so. So with all due respect, Rabbi Dr. Hertz, there's got to be more here than meets the eye. And there's a lot more than meets the eye. We're not going to have time for all of it, but I wanted to share with you a little bit of a glimpse that we understand in the methodology of, of, of interpreting mitzvos, taking this approach of, it doesn't seem to make sense, it sounds very foreign, it sounds very anti-Jewish, and therefore let's reject it. Lo That's not how we do things. Let's understand the Ramban and Ibn Ezra for a moment. The, um, the Vilna Gon writes in his commentary to Yeridea, he says, when people try to explain passages in the Talmud in a, in a philosophical way that works with their understanding of the world, because at face value it's very difficult to understand, what they're doing is they're being influenced by the philosophers. And this is actually talking about the Rambam in a different context. He says, of course there are things in the Talmud that at face value make very little sense. And guess what? Don't take them at face value. But he has an amazing line. He says, They have an inner truth to them. Not your inner truth. Which is really very external and superficial and just you know, an expression of what the world views as, as, as normal right now. Ella shall balaya emis. There's an inner truth to everything that we know only through the balaya emis, the masters of Kabbalah. Where do we see any connection between the Seirim of Yom Kippur and Esav? Well, the Mishnah tells us that those, these two Seirim, Seirim need to be mitzvosen sheyu shnehen shovin bemara. They have to look the same, ubakoma, and they have to be the same height and the same value, and they have to come from the same flock. Basically, they should look like twins. Another interesting correlation between Yaakov and Esav and the two Seirim is if you go back into Bereshis, where Yitzchak was about to give the bracha to Esav, what did he say? Make for me my favorite steak that I love. Bring it to me, and I will eat it in order that my neshama should bless you. Rivka overhears this. What does she tell Yaakov? Va'ata b'ni shema b'koli. My son, listen to my advice that I'm commanding you. Lech nol atzon. Go to the tzon. V'kach li mishom shnei gedia izim. And take from there two goats. Two good goats. V'eso sam matamim la'vicha kasher ahev. And make for your father his favorite delicacy that he loves. So these two goats have to look the same. They have to be twins. As we know, Yaakov and Esau were very similar until they grew up and clearly expressed themselves. And we have another connection that Rivka tells Yaakov, take two young goats and give them to your father. Why did he need two? How hungry was Yitzchak? Wasn't one sufficient? So Chazal tells us that one was for Yitzchak and one was for the Korban Pesach. It was Pesach that day. Okay? Comes along the Kliyakar, we're going to have to conclude momentarily. Comes along the Kliyakar and he says, 
it appears to me that these two goats that are domim mamish l'shnei gedi izim, they are analogous to the two goats that Yaakov received, that Yaakov brought to Yitzchak. V'oses echad matamim, and he made one as a delicacy, kasher ohev achomer, to satisfy the physical desire of his father. V'zechelko shel simoel, and this is the portion going to Samoel. Shenitein lo shochad, that we're giving him this bribery, kadeshi yekabel Yaakov habrochos al chelko mitzad hagidiyasheni, in order that Yaakov should receive the bracha from the other gedi that's going Pesach l'Hashem. It sounds like the Kliyakar is saying structurally that one goat went to, to Yitzchak, his father. That was for the physical desire of eating. He wanted to eat to feel good in order to give him a geshmak bracha. And the other one was for Hashem. So too, when it comes to the service on Yom Kippur, one, one seir goes to Samoel, this force of physicality, and the other one goes to Hashem. Does that mean we're offering to demons? Of course not. We don't believe in offering to demons. That's a prohibition. It sounds like from the Kliyaka though, it's all within the, the umbrella of a Kaddosh Baruch Hu. The prohibition is if you think they have any power onto themselves, then you're greatly mistaken and you're a pagan. But, the mitzvah here is, there is a force of Gashmias, there is a force of physicality in the world. Part of the Yom Kippur is making a separation between that of physicality and that that's totally Ruchnias, that's a totally spiritual. We're going to have to stop here. And I feel bad stopping here because there's a lot more to get into, but the hour is late. The point though, are we going to walk away knowing for sure what the whole intent and motivation was between the Yom, behind the Yom Kippur service? The answer is of course not, because it's a chok. But the inspiration should be that our methodology in approaching Torah is not to reject something offhand. If we have real sources, in this case the Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, and the Pirkei the Rebbe telling us that there's something a lot more metaphysical going on over here, then we have to believe that's true, and we have to investigate that to the best of our abilities. Will we get to that point of Ad Shiyodo Magas, where we totally understand it? The answer is no. But we have to have an appreciation for what the Torah is telling us, and to explore it thoroughly. Have a good night.